Suddenly somebody will say like plate or shrimp or plate of shrimp out of the blue. No explanation, no point. Look at one. It's all part of the cosmic Welcome to the Cult Film Companion Podcast, the home of movies that are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. My name is Chris, I am your host, and I have a very special guest joining me for this episode. But before I introduce my uh, co-host for the show, and the, uh, well, you already know what movie we're covering, but I just want to remind everyone that the Cult Film Companion Podcast is now available on all major podcast platforms. Please follow us on social media. Instagram and Twitter, same handle, at cultfilmcomp, C-U-L-T-F-I-L-M-C-O-M-P. We are also a featured podcast on the Blind Knowledge Collective Creative Collective website at www.blindknowledge.com, which is a great website to check out for videocasts and podcasts from around the world covering all sorts of unique and interesting topics presented in an entertaining fashion. We are also a featured podcast on Newsly. Newsly is an audio app for iOS and Android that finds the latest trending articles based on topics that you choose to follow and then reads them to you in a natural human voice. For the first time in the history of the internet, the entire web becomes listenable. Stop scrolling, start listening. Download and use Newsly for free today at www.newsly.me. And please use the promo code C-O-L-T-F-1-L-M. That's cult film. Drop the I, pop in a one, and get a month free of Newsly's premium service courtesy of us. So with all that hot dogging and grandstanding out of the way, Flicksters, I am... Very, very happy and excited to introduce my guest for this show, Mr. Will Dobson. Will, welcome to the Cult Film Companion Podcast. Oh, happy to be here, yeah. Now, you are the co-editor of American Twilight, the cinema of Toby Hooper, and you teach courses in cult cinema, horror, George A. Romero, westerns, musicals, and other genre films and filmmakers at UNC Greensboro. So please tell us a little bit about the book, American Twilight. Oh, yeah, thanks. Uh, yep. Uh, the genesis of this book actually uh, goes all the way back to 2008 when I was a graduate student. I, uh, I uh, gave a presentation on Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 at the National Popular Culture Association Conference, which that year was in San Francisco. Wow. And uh, I met this guy named Christopher Woofter, who was uh, one of the um, organizing chairs of the horror section of the of the Pop Culture Association. And we struck up a friendship over, uh, over a number of years. And um, then when, uh, when Hooper uh, passed away in, in 2017, unfortunately, we put together a... Um, sort of memorial roundtable for uh, the Pop Culture Association uh, conference. And as a result of that roundtable, we thought, you know, uh, there has not been uh, a a scholarly um, 
like university press publication uh, that is a comprehensive study of Toby Hooper before. Um, almost everything that's written about him is um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, or to a lesser extent, Poltergeist. So what if we put something together that's that's um, scholarly, but also accessible for, for general readers and really give Hooper the uh, respect and comprehensive treatment that he that he deserves. And uh, so we pitched a proposal to, appropriately enough, the University of Texas Press. Um, and really, I, I don't see how this could have been published uh, with any other... <laughs> with any other press than uh, University of Texas, um, given also that that Toby was you know born in Austin and, and went to college uh, at the University of Texas Austin, so um, this the press the press was very supportive and we got um, just an unbelievable group of contributors who um, really went in deep. I mean, we we cover every film. Uh, Almost every episode of television, uh, his novel, uh, Midnight Movie, um, just everything. In fact, uh, we probably pay the least amount of attention to the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, just kind of pointing out that that's, that's already been uh, covered so well in the past. And, and yeah, excuse the pun, but talk to death. For, for those yeah. people that immediately associate Toby Hooper with like you said, Poltergeist and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Can you just throw out a couple other movies that are, are worth checking out? I have got a couple off the top of my head. Obviously, the one we're covering today. Um, oh, yeah. I'm a big fan of Life Force. Uh, I also am a big fan of Spontaneous Combustion. But what are some um, other um, films of his that people might be sleeping on that they should uh, they should check out? Oh, and Funhouse. The Funhouse, of course. <laughs> absolutely. Um well, you know, when you when you uh, spend two or three years of your life um, with a with a filmography, you 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 grow to love all of it. Um, but I, I think some really under the radar uh, stuff that that a lot of people don't uh, really get to see often enough. Night Terrors, which um, unfortunately does not have a an, a U.S. DVD or Blu-ray release yet, but hopefully soon. Uh, Night Terrors is just batshit crazy. Yeah. Um, okay. Ro Robert England uh, stars as the Marquis de Sade. Um, it's definitely his most Hooper's most sensual movie. He doesn't have a lot of sex in his movies, but this this one's got some. Um, Toolbox Murders, which was an in name only remake of the. Uh, the Grindhouse movie, uh, I think that one's really incredible. Um, and he worked more... with Robert Englund on, what is it, Eaten Alive? Yeah, that's right. Yes. Uh, Which is uh, he had several team-ups with uh, with England. Um, and Eaten Alive was a pretty early role for, um, for England, so um, very formative experience. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of good Toby Hooper movies out there, and if you've only yeah. seen uh, Poltergeist, and if you've only seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and hopefully you've seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre, too, if you're you're listening to us talk about it, because uh, I, I go back and forth over which one of these I like better, the original or part two, I, I kind of... 
Anyway, we're getting into Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, so let me just get some of the uh, the technical stuff out of the way. So, um, uh, Hooper had a three-picture deal with Canon, and for them, uh, I've talked a lot of Canon here on the show, Manhattan, uh, I always mess up their names, but I always have a, <laughs> I have a, I have a buddy of mine, Austin uh, Trudnik, who wrote, uh, who's writing a continuous yeah. uh, history of Canon films, so check out Austin's book for all things Canon, but Toby Hooper had a three-picture deal with Canon, who was um, a powerhouse in the of, of movie making in the 80s, and he did Life Force, uh, which I love, Invaders from Mars, which I've only seen once that I need to revisit, and then um, he initially had only come on uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 as uh, he only wanted to come on as a producer, and they couldn't really find a, a director that would do it, given the budget they had, but uh, some of the genesis of the project, and please correct me if any of this is wrong, but I'm just going by some of the research that I did, that the the seedlings for a sequel to Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 were actually, um, was actually a story of an entire town that was full of cannibals, and this was uh, an idea that he had with his original co-writer, Kim Henkel, and it was supposed to be called Beyond the Valley of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, that never saw the light of day. And he had been previously working with um, L.M. Kit Carson, who I'm just going to call Carson, just for the sake of uh, brevity, and you know, um, who had previously worked on movies such as Paris, Texas, and Breathless, so this was kind of a change of pace for Carson, but he and Toby had been working on a, uh, another script, and uh, according to Hooper, they walked into the Canon offices and walked out six minutes later with a green light to do Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Uh, right. And um, so they were given a budget of $4.5 million, which isn't much... Um, but, I mean, it's it's a canon film, and canon were never known for their huge budgets anyway. Plus, they they were in the practice of uh, uh, taking away from budgets and then giving money to budgets, depending on how well their movies did. And um, so $4.5 million was the, the, the number that I got for a budget here, and it grossed at the box office around $8 million, But this movie really found its feet um, at the video store and through rentals. Yeah, I remember uh, I saw it first, and it was actually the first Toby Hooper movie I ever saw. I saw it first on USA Up All Night. Me too. Uh, I was gonna just say this, this. I was gonna say it was either Bill Bob, uh, Joe Bob Briggs, who um, yeah. we'll, we'll get into because he has a, a cameo that was cut from the movie. But yeah, the first right. time. Um, I got to say, Poltergeist was probably the first Toby Hooper movie that I saw, but I remember distinctly seeing, um, I hadn't even seen the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre yet, but I remember, so um, your memory is probably a little bit better than mine, It sounds, but I saw it on late night cable as well, and I remember uh, staying up late to watch it. Yeah, um, I encountered it by, by accident. I remember turning to the channel, because uh, I liked... I think it was a Ronda Shear night. They alternated between Gilbert Gottfried and Ronda Shear. It was a Ronda Shear night. Um, and I was like 12 or 13, so I was pretty excited to see her. Sure. And, uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> 
But uh, and and it's edited. It was edited for network TV, but it was still pretty intense. And I came in on the sequence where Chop Top and Leatherface uh, break into the radio station and all hell breaks loose. And it definitely imprinted itself, you know, um, uh, the intensity of, of Chop Top, uh, Bill Mosley's performance, and in particular in that sequence, um, kind of scared the hell out of me. And But but it was also funny, you know, and, uh, and then the, uh, we'll get into it more, but the, um, the sort of sexualized um, gyrations that Leatherface has with the, the chainsaw that scene really messed me up. <laughs> yeah, and then we'll, um, it's yeah. He he does some thrusting, and then he also does yeah. his. Um, I mean, he's it's notable the 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 iconic scene from the 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 original is him kind of just like thrashing away in this dusty dusty Texas yeah. road with the um, with the chainsaw. Um, but yeah, so we we kind of came across this movie the same way because I wasn't old enough to rent this movie, although mm-hmm. I was old enough to remember like reading. Um, no, nah, I probably wasn't old enough to read Fangoria, but I was definitely old enough to remember seeing the um, iconic, well now iconic spoof of the Breakfast Club with right. um, the <laughs> with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. And I remember that was just like one of those movies I just couldn't wait to be old enough to rent. And um, yeah, and then watching the the heavily edited version on um, on I guess it was up all night because yeah, either that or it was Monster Vision with Joe Bob Briggs. But I remember I so I never got to watch these uh, these eighties horror movies in order. I would always right. kind of see them by luck of the draw, whatever late night television, you know had to offer um yeah and, kids these days don't know you know no, they don't know you know they don't know that the uh, the suffering that we had to put through with um with uh with uh, up all night and if they decided to do 80s um uh goofy sex comedies and you know you were in the mood for a horror movie um you know sometimes you had to wait but um yeah <laughs> so it's speaking of Bill, Bill Mo, so this this has uh, uh, actually a well known cast. Um, well, more well known today, but obviously it at least has a name that you could put on the cover, uh, Mister Dennis Hopper. And, oh yeah. I mean the the original was all unknowns, and um, I mean because it was a micro budget, basically you know, a, a small group of people you, that I could probably fit in my apartment where the amount of people that worked on uh, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And from my understanding is that, and maybe I'm missing it, maybe I need to go rewatch, but but Hooper always insisted that there was a lot of dark humor in the original. Oh, yeah, Definitely. And I, I can think of some some humorous scenes, um, but for this one, he really wanted to amp up. He amped up the two things that I think people were saying that they was missing from the first one because the first one is always talked about what a such a gory, bloody movie, and there's not. He, it's all what you don't see. Yeah. So. He kind of answered that and said, well, all right, well, I'm just going to hire the best special effects guy in the business 
working right now, and Mr. Tom Savini does some great effects in this movie. And all that blood that you wanted to see, okay, you're gonna, you, we'll, we'll give you that blood, and um, that dark humor that you weren't picking up on, okay, it went over your head this time. I'm gonna just, uh, it'll be really on the nose because this movie, um, from what I, from what I heard, um, and, and it's funny because I listened to to Hooper's uh, commentary about the movie. And he kind of downplayed it, but um, from what I've heard from other people is that the people at Canon were not too happy with the final product. Right. They, they wanted a more straightforward horror movie, and Cooper just wanted to do a really dark comedy. And, I mean, this movie, is it's got one-liners, it's got kind of mm-hmm. goofy characters, and, um, it, uh, you know... I like the way that these two movies, the two movies open up. They're a perfect kind of, they bookend each other very well with the 70s and the 80s. In the 70s, we've got a, a hippie van full of uh, pot-smoking hippies that love astrology and all that kind of stuff. And the opening to Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, we got yuppies or um, beamer bums, as they were called, driving around in dad's sports car, um, being very obnoxious, and, you know, it's it's just interesting, to, like, it's it, it sets the stage for the rest of the movie, you know, the first one was all about the 70s, and this one is um, all about the 80s, and um, to me, I really, I, I, I like the... Um, the progression that you know that he didn't do the same old thing like he could have easily done texas chainsaw massacre part two and kept it very dark very gritty um but i think that some of the bright like you know some of the scenes in the daytime and just some of the the color that we get throughout this movie is kind of just reminiscent of 80s movies in general you know yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, in general, Hooper Hooper's style as such really um, shifts to accommodate uh, the themes that he's going for with each individual movie. Um, he has a consistent kind of grittiness um, and, and a kind of relentless pacing. But the look changes. Um, mm-hmm. uh from movie to movie, which I think is really interesting. In fact, we're recording on September 26th. Uh, just yesterday, um, I got a chance to see the 40th anniversary uh, re-release of Poltergeist in, in the on the big screen. First time for me to see it on the big screen, and it just looked terrific. Um, and so many little details that I had um, forgotten from the last time I'd seen it. Uh, uh, come into play and and just the little bits of humor all throughout sometimes obvious sometimes to the side um chainsaw 2 i think is his most explicitly humorous film other than maybe a a made for showtime film he did later called the amusement park uh the the amusement park that's george romero um uh, the apartment complex which has not been released yet that one was more of a um a um, surrealistic kind of comedy, but but Chainsaw Two, I think, is his most uh, explicit and accomplished um, balancing of the horror and the and the comedy. 
for yeah, sure. I, I, I would agree. Um, and I think another thing that comes to mind is um, body bags. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> John Carpenter. I'm trying to think which segment that he directed, but there was always some dark, there was some dark humor in, in yeah. throughout that movie. Uh, and for those of you yeah. who checked out Body Bags, yeah. um, it was a, it was supposed to be an anthology TV series, but um, for yeah. whatever reason, it didn't end up that way. So we just got a nice anthology movie directed by John Carpenter and Toby Hooper. So you got two of the two of the greats of horror working together. Do you remember yeah. which segment that he directed in Body Bags? I do. Uh, it's called I, and uh, it stars um, Mark Hamill. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's great. All right, because I know there's the one with the eye, and then there's the one with the the guy with the hair. Um, but there, that's enough about body bags. If you haven't checked out <laughs> body bags, and it's the horror season, it's October. Uh, well, yeah. it's September. This episode will be dropping in October. Uh, check out body bags. Um, For sure. Speak. So speaking of Bill Mosley, um, mm. he made a short parody film called. What was it called? The Texas Chainsaw Manicure. That's right. Yeah, and he showed it to uh, Toby Hooper, and this was before um, plans were even like it was. You know, Texas Chain. We're just gonna call it Saw Two for the for, for the sake of brevity, because apparently that's what the the cast and crew just just started calling it Saw Two. So for Saw before Saw Two had even entered production, and he showed it to him, and and I, I guess Hooper either said. That if we do a Saw 2, then, like, there's going to be a role for you. And um, I, I guess he remembered because we've got Bill Mosley in probably, well, I know it's Mosley's personal favorite performance of mine. It's also my favorite Mosley performance. He's yeah. just brilliant as Chop Top. He, as pre- I'm sorry, please. Oh, yes, yeah, it's pretty amazing. He had only had... Uh one film appearance and it was a brief one in um alan rudolph's endangered species in 82 and um uh chainsaw 2 was his first you know big role and he knocked it out of the part i mean you know it was one of those cliche things a role that an actor is born for but uh, you can't really imagine anyone else uh as this character he's he's so perfect for it no and he's the twin brother who i, I guess so he so the character chop top was in vietnam during the time of the, right. the the original texas chainsaw massacres taking place and his twin brother is nubbins or as most people know him the hitchhiker and right. um the hitchhiker although he was ostensibly killed in the original i love the fact that they brought back nubbins and they basically i mean this is a twisted twisted family we'll get into grandpa we'll get into grandma but they just couldn't let nubbins go so he's basically just a petrified corpse and his introduction i mean there's no better and i think for me what really for 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 whatever reason the opening sequence in this movie with these two yuppies getting terrorized you know they played chicken with the uh the soya brothers and that was uh that was a mistake and um 
And now um, we get this opening scene where it it looks like this big puppet, and it's it's the hitchhiker's decomposed body, and it's like kind of dancing around on top of a pickup truck. And then the chainsaw revs up, and then we see Leatherface, and he he hacks up a car, he hacks off one of their heads, and we get some great Tom Savini effects, and um, yeah, it's just a great introduction to Leatherface, but I think that the way that Chop Top is introduced in this Sonny Bono wig, because from a distance you can tell that there's something not quite right about this guy, but in a darkened radio station where his introduction takes place, you know, maybe he's just uh, he's a little off, but like once you kind of see his makeup and the plate and all that, just brilliant, brilliant stuff. And um, he's constantly picking away with this clothes hanger at his plate that he got in his head. And um, uh, it it's also turns out that, you know, we had the Vietnam War and then uh, Veterans Disability to thank for uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre because Chop Top is funding this entire little business venture of theirs, which is uh, kind of weird when you think about it that way. Yeah, it really pulls together the, the, the themes, right? Like that, that opening that you described uh, gets into the the excessiveness of, you know, 80s entertainment, the, the, the Reagan era, the yuppie um, materialism. And then, and then that costume that Chop Top's in really pull, pulls together into one succinct image the disillusionment of you know the the what had been kind of the optimism of the the hippie free love sixties rock and roll that then devolved into you know all the iconic deaths of the the rock stars the Vietnam War the assassinations of um, Martin Luther King Jr. and um, Robert Kennedy mm-hmm. the the, the violence and 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 then later there's kind of you know the 70s were such a great decade for cinema but a really vapid decade for um main, mainstream entertainment you know <laughs> right, right. in many ways um and the 80s kind of continued that uh but but into ever more um exaggerated uh uh, and excessive um, uh, behavior. Link. Yeah, yeah, and it's kind of it's ironic. I think that Canon um, was unhappy with this film because it is tonally much more in keeping with the completely over the top action films that Canon was pumping out. You know? Oh yeah, um, right. The the different the difference being that. You know, Hooper is playing with that, you know, and 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 making comments with it. But uh, uh, I, I'm really not sure why this wasn't uh, uh, embraced more by <laughs> by Canon. Uh, I feel like you know it made a modest, a very modest pro- profit, but it was not a, a hit by any means, and it and it really didn't do much uh, to uh, keep Hooper's um, keep heat on Hooper's name, and it's a, it's a real shame because <laughs> I mean. Uh, I have a, we look now and see what a classic it is. Right. I, well, I have a theory 
and my my theory just by watching canon films but more uh talking with people that like study canon films is mm-hmm. that they don't know if it's not very simple to market they don't know what to do with it that's why something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 when you hand it over to the marketing team they're like this movie is goofy <laughs> like this is not this is not what like 80s horror is like 80s horror was supposed to be gritty and bloody and you're supposed to have a high like we're 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 each franchise is trying to outdo each other with the high body counts and um we'll get into some of the deleted scenes because um um, there, there was supposed to be a much higher body count in this movie, but right. I think so. Canon like doesn't know if it's not something to easily market. Like we've got Chuck Norris, we've got our Charles Bronson movies. We know how to market the hell out of action movies. If it's a straight horror movie, we can do it. If it's a straight action movie, it's these movies. And and again, why I think it's developed such a cult following is because. Cult movies generally do not fall into one neat little box. You can't just say, I mean, like the first Halloween movie, I would just say is a is is a horror movie, it's just straight up. But something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre two, you can't deny the humor that is here. It it is so apparent and it's so obvious that um, I think that the, that's kind of what makes Canon nervous is that when they have something good on their hands, they don't really know what to do with it because it's not something for them to easily market. And I, I, that's my theory. And I think that because of that, so we should probably talk about the release. And I think the marketing, the, the reason that this wasn't really a success was now Correct me if I'm wrong. Was this movie initially released unrated? Um, I don't recall if it was released unrated initially. I think they got it down to an R. I could I could be wrong on that point though. Because because um, I know Hooper said that he was not contractually obligated to deliver an R film, which is probably after something like this happens that a lot of companies check off because what some people don't know is that one of the things that comes into movie making from a behind the scenes um, decision is um, very often right off the bat the, the 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 big suits upstairs in the offices not the ones making the actual movie kind of know what rating they're going for because that affects marketing advertising that affects theater chains that affects all that sort of thing so if you deliver um you're supposed to deliver a pg-13 movie then it's an r very often you're gonna have to trim stuff to get it down to a pg-13 i've heard timeless tales about that and a numerous the most uh, you know the biggest problem is if you're supposed to deliver an r and the mpaa says no way because basically what hooper said is that like when he delivered it to the mpaa they said that we it was it was released unrated. I just uh, looked it up. Oh, in the okay. Book. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, um, even with all the cuts. Yeah. Well, that's the thing they said. They were like, um, "We're not even going to give you a list of cuts. Like, if this is the movie you want to put out, we're just not, we refuse to rate it. Um, this movie, yeah. So, um, and new, and I mean, yeah. There's a lot of 
there's different cuts of this movie. Um, you can get the R-rated cut. You can get the unrated cut. Um, and there's some um, some great deleted scenes. We'll get to in a little bit. But more about the cuts and stuff. Like getting this into other countries was an, like Australia straight up banned this movie for 20 years. That, yeah. that was the most egregious um, example that I could come across. But I think, I mean, that kind of answers why the box office wasn't really there. Um, because unlike an R movie, if your parents accompany you or an adult accompanies you, you can get into an R movie. Um, even, an, I mean, and then you get into the NC-17 movies where you, you have to be 17 straight up. Like, it doesn't matter who you could bring your grandfather with you, but you're not getting into the movie. And then I, I still, I, it still blows my mind that movies were getting an X rating for violence alone. But I mean, this so this movie probably would have been like you know the the either no rating or you get an X and it's for violence. And of course now every time we hear an X rated movie, uh, we we know we, it's right. a, a, a pornographic movie and. I mean, it's it's just fascinating. I wonder if this ever comes up in your film studies class, where like when you should, like if you ever discuss the history of the movie ratings and the fact that movies like, uh, like the classic Midnight Cowboy got an X rating. And, yeah, yeah, Clockwork Orange, right. and all that. Yeah. Uh, John Waters movies were just you know they just, um. So that's a whole different conversation. But yeah, this movie. And again, another thing that Canon Canon wanted, and this will be a good segue yeah. into getting into some of these um, deleted scenes. Are you familiar with the deleted scenes from this movie before I get into them? Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, so, because this movie's short, it's 90, maybe 90 minutes. I want to say it's probably closer to 80-something minutes, but it's short. It's no more than 90 minutes. And originally... The original cut for this that Hooper um, presented to them was a hundred minutes, and they... yeah, and uh, and that's the version you get um, hundred one minutes uh, on the uh, on the uh, um, Blu-ray that's that's currently available. Although the uh, there's a new one coming out that we might talk about in a bit um, that I'm very excited about. Oh, um, I'm dying to hear about that. But yes, so, okay, so the uh, yeah. So if you're what yeah so you can watch because I have both cuts because I'm looking here I have two versions of the movie yeah this is 101 minutes this is what Hooper intended for and the cuts that had to be made for uh, the 90 minute version were not because of the MPAA it was because of Canon and they said that they could get more you can get more screenings in if the movie's 90 minutes I mean because that's another thing that happens with um, with movies, just a little behind the scenes knowledge that's, you know, shorter movies means more screen you can show more daily screenings because you gotta have time in between for them to clean up the theater get the projectionist all ready and so the original cut, which I I'm trying to think what's what's missing from the 90 minute cut that's in the, the most I guess the, the most the most well-known version at this point is probably the the hundred and one minute version. Do you know like what sort of scenes were were trimmed down for that? And that doesn't even get into the deleted scenes. Do you know what scenes are missing from the for, like the ninety minute cut? 
I've I've actually I've never seen a, a ninety minute cut. Oh, okay. So what you, what you were what you were saying is new to me. <laughs> yeah. Um. So there are yeah there are different versions of this movie and um but yeah if you pick up if you basically what happens nowadays I think ever since the the dawn of DVD. Um, you probably can't even get the 90-minute cut. You could find it probably bootleg somewhere or on VHS. But um, Okay, I, I see. I pulled it up uh, on the uh, inter, interwebs here. There was that 90-minute that cut uh, went into Canada and Australia and, and so on. It looks like they cut a lot of... Uh, the scenes with um, LG and and Stretch uh, using LG's skin to hide. Oh, yeah, yeah, that yeah. that that makes sense. Uh, that's not the kind of thing. Yeah, the you know that could be iffy for the MPAA. But um, yeah. So the 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 deleted scenes here, and please, if you have any more, that um, I'm just going to go off a couple. We'll we'll start with the 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 entire intro to this movie. There's a there's a completely different intro with the different music and it's basically just um the screen titles and instead of being over um black or kind of over this uh night sky right right and um so that's not so fun if you're looking for a fun but then we get into some uh two really violent deleted scenes here would you like to um to talk us through the the um, the two scenes that I'm referring to, the one um, we'll start with the um, we'll start with I guess the th- there's a lot of talk throughout this movie about a big game between Oklahoma and Texas and um, yeah the Sawyer family they, they get all together and uh, they're driving around looking for fresh meat and they come across some uh, I guess football hooligans we'll call them you want to. Uh, tell everyone a little bit about what happens when they run into these football hooligans well sure i mean you, you, you pretty much describe it there it's it's kind of a, a splatter fest of uh um uh cutting up uh these 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 football fans who are kind of um getting rowdy and um some lots of blood lots of meat um and it, it makes sense that it was cut uh, because it, it it really would have um, messed with the pacing of it, which is, you know, the 100-minute the version, I think, is really tightly paced. It, it feels it, like it goes a lot faster. It is, especially where this scene was supposed to happen um, is right before the climax. I think that this a scene like this could have worked better as, you know... In the first, you know, you probably want a scene like this in your first third or second third. You don't want this this scene to to um to go into right, right into the climax. So yeah, I could see. Um, but this is kind yeah. of. I'm sorry. Oh no, go ahead. I was just gonna say, I think that these are the kinds of scenes that um, <laughs> some of the gorehounds were probably expecting more of, because like you said, and again, the humor here is right on point. We've got uh, Chop Top is plate playing with nubbins and um drayton sawyer is driving the truck and he's complaining about his kids and then they come across Mm -hmm. these football hooligans and then the humor is so on point here 
because of all things to offer a rowdy group of college football fans, he offers them a croissant, which I think is just right. uh, just like of all the things, like I could just imagine these big burly Texans being like, this man just offered me a croissant. And then, yeah, we basically get. Um, well, it's Texas, so they would have said crescent roll. Crescent roll. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, th- I think he says croissant in the deleted scene, though. But that, does he really? Yeah, I think he does. I think he says croissant. Uh, anyway. I wouldn't be called dead saying a French word. Yeah, well, all right. <laughs> so, but, um, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. Um, no, after you. I was just going to say, so then we get a lot of um, just, and it's it's kind of, um, it kind of seems out of place in this movie because it's a lot, it's, it's just rapid cuts of mindless violence. You see body parts flying here, there, and everywhere. Um, the one thing that I really did like is somebody's hand is cut off and it, bends into a middle finger like a, as yeah. the, as the severed hand closes it it, it, it becomes a middle finger um yeah. but then uh the other notorious scene features mr joe bob briggs and um you want to tackle this one i talk i because i kind of ruined the uh the tech uh the football hooligans when you want to talk about the uh joe bob um <laughs> scene yeah, well, this is a, a nice little uh, a cameo, um, uh, but it, it, it uh, of course makes sense why it's cut out. So Joe Bob is uh, Briggs, the world's foremost drive-in movie critic, and uh, still going to this day. Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, well, I'll tell a little, another little story about him in a minute. But uh, so in the scene, he's he's coming out of a movie theater with the. With uh, two young women, and he's uh, attempting to mansplain <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the, the violence of the movie to him, uh, uh, and uh, and then uh, uh, they come they come across uh, the Sawyer clan, and, and Leatherface uh, uh, cuts him up. I can't remember the exact line, but it's uh, something like "nail my dick to a." To a I think he says, "nail my dick to a tree." That's it. Well, nail my dick to a tree. Uh, and then he says, and, uh, "Then he says saw foo." And for those of you who don't know, I remember getting a Joe Bob, and I, I'm very anxious to hear your story. But my Joe Bob, I've never yeah. met the man, unfortunately. Someday, fingers crossed. Uh, but I got one of his books, and the way that he reviews things in written form is yeah. he would put foo afterwards, like if like something yeah. like a bizarre kill happened. So. For those of you watching the deleted scenes and saying, "What the hell is Saw Fu?" That it's a it's a Joe Bob Briggs ism, I would say. Right when you're when you're given the drive-in totals, you let people know that there's going to be Saw Fu, uh, 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 coat hanger Fu, yeah. et cetera, and so on. Um, and you know the 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 scene didn't work in the in the pacing of the film but but it did work in the in terms of the film's themes and and this will lead me to uh the the little joe bob story re- relevant to the book awesome um, I, and i i think a lot of the uh the scenes that were cut uh did help reemphasize um the way the violence was kind of um focused which is very uh, m- male, and and what I mean by that is, is this movie even more than the original, really focused in on 
men and 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 a kind of shift in in terms of the male paradigm every every man in this movie is kind of over the top over exaggerated and kind of ineffectual or obsolescent you look at lefty and right as as Dennis Hopper plays him he's a psycho he's he's just as crazy as the um as the Sawyer family and he and he You'd think, right, this cowboy with his big cowboy hat is going to come in and be kind of a hero character, but he's he's destructive. He's he's uh, unhinged, to use the parlance of our times, mm-hmm. um, or, or or another phrase we might use: toxic masculinity abounds. <laughs> you've got you've got you know Leatherface kind of menacing um, stretch with with his over long chainsaw, right, and he's kind of using it as, as a prosthetic uh penis and he's he's putting it on display right thrusting with it and tearing stuff up and what does she do she uses the language of um Mm de-escalation right to to kind of uh calm it down and, and and give her room to escape and really she's having to do that with every man in the movie uh lg who's who's her uh engineer in the radio station is always hitting on her and she's gently redirecting him um, she tries to redirect Chop Top, although because he's not really interested in in sex, he's <laughs> he's harder to control. Well, I, um, I, I want and, and go ahead. I was just gonna say, uh, why you just bring up so many um, interesting points? Because now, yeah. if memory serves, the entire body count of this movie, because not including the deleted scenes, is all men. Right. And um, it is the way it, it wasn't so much in the first one, but the chainsaw becomes a very phallic object in yes. this. And when I listened to, to to Toby Hooper's commentary, he was talking about the fact that Chop Top is constantly picking at his head at the um, the plate in his head because. The backstory, which is not explained in the movie, is that if he reaches just the right little spot, he immediately mm-hmm. orgasms. Right. So that's why he's always scratching at his head. But I think you're, you 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 made a, such an elegant point that all the men in this movie are are just various stereotypes, and they're all being kept in check by a stretch for the most part. Right. And, you know, and, and she's kind of navigating this very um, 80s secret of my success uh, uh, mercenary um, corporate climbing, too. Right. The whole reason she gets involved is because she she gets that audio tape of the, the yuppie guys getting killed. And she thinks um, she can parlay that into, um, uh, you know, becoming a, a more serious journalist, which is kind of ironic right because it's a little commentary on um news media even you know in the early 80s before we got the 24-hour news cycle you know if it bleeds it leads the sensationalization of of um violence as a way to um uh get viewers and 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 listeners and and work your way up the 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 food chain it's really um abhorrent right but she's in the system and she's in the system and so this is what she has to do to get ahead right exactly and then 
and uh, and I think uh, Jim Seidel, right, as as um, uh, as the kind of head brother of the clan, he, he's got this great line with with Leatherface, right? Um, or uh, as Chop Top puts it, Bubby's got a girlfriend, and, and <laughs> Seidel sits him down and he says. Uh, why didn't you just ask me? He, <laughs> he was going to explain the birds and the bees to <laughs> to Leatherface. Right. right. He, said, he says, sex or the saw, boy, what's it going to be? Sex, well, nobody knows, but the saw is family. Yeah. Uh, and, and and earlier he calls sex a swindle, right? Yeah, um, and, oh, yeah. And, you know, these, these so these these brothers are, are you know, entrepreneurs in what might be called an early entry in the food truck business i was gonna um, say i was gonna say it it's something really struck me i was like is this the first time we're seeing a food truck like in a, in a movie <laughs> um i'm i'm guessing that maybe earlier but now food trucks are all the rave but like right i don't re- I, I didn't re- remember i remember like him driving because i remember the phone call when he, that he gets, but I had no idea that this man, Drayton Sawyer, has has a legit food truck. Yeah, yeah, award winning artisanal meats, right? This two, is I two mean, years, this, two years in a row, best chili in Texas, or best chili yeah. in Oklahoma and Texas, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yeah, so so uh, Joe Bob's cameo scene kind of continues that that uh, theme of. Um, uh, kind of over over the top uh, masculine uh, caricature, right? Because the whole Joe Bob Briggs persona is this over the top. He's a cowboy, uh, right? Who's <laughs> who's uh, who pretends like he's dumb when he's actually uh, you know very astute and uh, you know makes makes. But but he emphasizes that you know when he's reviewing a movie, he's going to count the number of breasts and the number of dead bodies and so on and so forth. And um, you know, in real life, uh, John Bloom, uh, the 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 real man behind Joe Bob Briggs, uh, always championed Toby Hooper's work. He wrote some of the best um, oral histories and, and journalism about uh, Texas Chainsaw and, and and other films. And when we finished the book, um, you know, Joe Bob Briggs has been a hero of mine since since I was a kid. My dad gave me a collection of his drive-in. Um, uh, columns uh, in 1989 and that really kind of got me into writing about movies and, and exploitation films so I, I have all of his books I religiously watch his uh, shows uh, and and um, when he came back on Shudder with The Last Drive-In um, I, just, I went to his website and clicked the contact button and said hey you know we're not we're not trying to get you to do anything. We just we finished this book, and we'd like to send you a copy, just as a way of saying thanks for the for the, um, uh, the for the influence yeah. and for always always being in Toby's corner. And he actually wrote back and said, you know, hey, send send a manuscript. I'll give you a blurb. And and then he uh, after that he actually participated in a in a YouTube roundtable that the University of Texas, uh, Texas Press did, and it's still on YouTube. People can see it. Um, uh, he 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 sat down with us and a couple other guys who had written Toby Hooper books, Stan Geezy, uh, uh Scout Tafoya, and uh, Julius Banzon, who runs the Toby Hooper Appreciation uh, website. 
Um, and he, he was very generous, um, you know, read through the book, gave a lot of great anecdotes and, and perspectives on, on Hooper. And uh, so we, it was a great way to kind of launch the book, which um, has been out for just about a year now um, with, with, uh, with Joe Bob kind of um, giving us a little bump. So I, I, I'm so grateful to so if uh, for that. So um, I'm, I would love to include in this episode description that YouTube clip and also um, yeah, where people can get, where people can get your book. Um, I, I, I assume that uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong. Is it available on Amazon? Because that's probably where most people would find it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's in it's in hardback right now, which means it's a little bit higher in price. But um, it's a re- I have to say, the University of Texas Press did a beautiful job with it it's uh got a really nice um dust jacket great cover uh image um and and, and it's really nicely put together you can also get it on the university of texas press website directly um or if you don't like amazon you know you can go to any other abe books or barnes and noble dot com anything like that um and i'll I'll definitely share with you uh, a link to the uh the round table which is a lot of fun. Yeah, that'd be great. I'm looking forward to it. And, you know, p- people that listen to, to the show, are, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, if, if Joe Bob Briggs is involved, I, I'm just kind of like, sign me up. I'm there. Um, he, like you said, we probably came across him at around the same time because I couldn't watch a lot of the movies that he reviewed. But mm-hmm. I remember finding at a yard sale these book. This book of uh, reviews of his, I could still picture the cover. And then, like... Um, Within all the reviews in the middle of the book, there were some some great pictures from the movies that he reviewed. Uh, so, but let's let's get back to um to Texas sure. Chainsaw Massacre too. Yeah, you brought up. So, uh, I mean, and that's another thing. And this happens with a lot of horror movies, and some I can understand the criticism, some not so much. But a movie like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Ch- Saw Two, the one we're discussing today. I think are a lot smarter. There's a lot more going on kind of cerebrally, psychologically. Yeah. I mean, you could take it at face value and just be like, oh, it's a lot of blood. And like as a kid, that was the draw for me to horror was the body count, the unique kills and all that kind of stuff. Now as an adult watching back at some of these movies, I've kind of phased out There's certain franchises. I'm not going to mention them on here that I, I just have no interest in. <laughs> and watching anymore but something like texas chainsaw massacre the original the second Mm -hmm. one the third to a lesser extent um and just by happenstance uh i i taped next generation off um off a cable and uh for some reason or another as a teenager that was one that i was in constant rotation and if you want to talk about a batshit crazy movie that's a Texas Chainsaw 4 and and I gotta say um, for the most part these modern horror remakes don't really do it for me I'd much rather watch the original um, I'm not gonna say that I would take the Ch- Chainsaw remake over the original but it's at least it's at least watchable and as opposed to some ho- modern horror remakes that are just uh, a follow the blueprint of the original almost scene for scene and uh just get a younger cast and we'll we'll make mm-hmm. some money at the box office. Uh, right. 
I, I'm kind of <laughs> as much. I'm kind of glad then that Chainsaw Two is such a unique beast that no one's. I mean, there would be, and yeah. I mean, you could theoretically remake it. Um, Bill Mosley's still around, and if you, I I think. And this kind of follows my. I have a theory about why it's so easy to to recast someone like Michael Myers or Jason is because there's no personality. There's no. Um, you don't see much of a face. It's mostly a mask. So it's very easy to recast. Uh, unfortunately, Leatherface. And what I want to talk about the casting of Leatherface in a in a minute. But when you have such someone with such a personality, I always go back to Robert Englund and Freddy Krueger, and that's why I watched the remake once, um, and I'll never watch it again. Why, especially with Robert Englund still being alive, why would you recast someone that brought the personality to Freddy Krueger? Um, and I feel the same way about something like Chop Top. Why would you? You couldn't recast it because no one's going to be able to do the little subtle nuances that right. um, that 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 Bill Mosley brought to this. And I know that um, maybe you could shed a little light on this. Have you seen? I I, I hear that there are scenes available. Uh, Hoop uh, Toby Hooper's son. Wanted to do a movie called All American Massacre, which would have featured yeah. Top Chop Top. Do you do you have any info about that? Any? Um, I what I know I know from um, Stan Geezy, who uh, worked on several uh, Toby Hooper pr- productions, um, including Spontaneous Combustion and I'm uh, I'm Dangerous Tonight. Which oh, that's one I, I should talk about uh, as well at some point. Um, we met him d- during the research process and he was a really generous guy he's actually written a couple books about hooper as well um and it was it remains unfinished and i think um what i if i remember correctly from my conversation with stan um you know tony hooper has what what materials there are but um it doesn't look like it'll ever get um released or or um, even even as like raw footage, yeah, uh, which is which is too bad because it sounded like a cool project. And you know, anytime you can see Bill Mosley in anything, <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> it's worth it. Yeah. Um, he's he's great. And if you if you're not following him on Twitter, you're missing out. The man's hilarious. Um, he really, yeah. <laughs> and uh, but uh, yeah, because it's his fate is unknown. And it actually, I mean, because the end of the movie, um, right. Let's just talk about the climax because the the climax to me is great. Like you were saying, we've got Dennis Hopper who's somehow either made or bought like uh, holsters for, for chainsaws. Yeah. Um, He's got the holstered chainsaws, like a like a parody of a of a cowboy. Like which a ca- is, um, um, and then I mean, the end. The uh, we get. Um, the the one of the funniest lines in the movie is the the um Drayton Sawyer the senior the senior brother says that uh ah it's small business always getting in the ass because he just got chainsawed in the ass uh, Leatherface is pretty much impaled on a chainsaw um, right 
and then knocked, I guess, unconscious or knocked over by Grandpa, who's threw a hammer and was trying to break up the melee, but threw a hammer, knocked out Leatherface. Uh, there's a grenade uh, that Nubbins had, and um, Drayton Sawyer pulls the pin. We never see an explosion, although there is, um, I guess, a deleted scene where um, yeah. uh, the climax is Carolyn Williams has climbed to the top of this tower where uh grandmother is who's sitting there all decomposed with a chainsaw she fights with him he falls off rolls kind of falls into this pipe so and and there is a deleted scene where you can see like a little of an explosion and his clothes shoot out the top of the pipe but Mm -hmm. i mean and i i kind of wish that I'm I'm kind of disappointed that no one's picked up on the fact that well, not only does it look like Chop Top could very well still be alive and that it continue with such a great character, um, because like Leatherface keeps coming back and back and back, um, and one I guess one of the things that I wanted to ask you about to see if you could clarify because I've got mixed reports here about Gunner Hansen's. Um, inclusion in this movie. What what do you know? And I'll tell you what I've heard. Yeah. Um, so Connor Hansen's a really interesting guy. So the, uh, he did not uh, return as Leatherface for part two. They cast um, uh, an actor named Bill Johnson, um, who was a big guy and really emotive. I thought I thought he did a really good job. He's in. Um, all the close-up shots. So does all the does, does all the, the acting with the eyes and the tongue. Um, the uh, offer was to to Gunner was um, for scale, and and he he um, turned that down. Um, that's 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 pretty much it. But uh, but. Uh, Hanson went on though to be a really good writer. Uh, he did. He made a memoir. He wrote a memoir called uh, "Chainsaw Confidential," and the the first line of it is so great. Uh, Call me Leatherface, you know, <laughs> a nice uh, uh, homage to Moby Dick. Nice. Um, but but more importantly, Hanson wrote, um, and this is in 1989. He wrote a book called "Islands at the Edge of Time." And it's a it's a geological survey of America's barrier islands from uh, the Gulf of Mexico up to um, North Carolina, and he was chronicling the impact of uh, climate change on on these barrier islands, which wow. you know throughout the eighties and nineties, uh, people were uh, real estate uh, people were developing. Um, Overdeveloping with with beachfront condos and so on and so forth. It's it's kind of uh, amazing. That is uh, amazing he, that he was that he was uh, doing this um, so early. I mean, and it, it, it's a, you never judge a book by its cover. You know, just because the man portrayed Leatherface doesn't mean that he's not brilliant. Because look at this, look at the work he's doing. And like you said, in 1989, before we knew all all of these. Um, these uh, words that have come now just to be just part of our vernacular every day. But I mean, 89 and he's, 
He's, gosh, that's just amazing. And I, I asked you about what you've heard because that's what I heard too. And mm. I heard that he was offered actually scale plus 10%. And, um, yeah, the story is the 10% was for his agent. And he said, I don't have an agent. Right. So they took away the 10%. <laughs> because it's very now, interesting to me because I listened to the commentary with Hooper and the guys kind of, uh, the, one of the guys doing the, uh, the commentary with Hooper asked him about it. And he played it off like he didn't know why he didn't. And I don't know if this was like out of respect or like he genuinely forgot. But Hooper was kind of like, I, I really don't know. I Maybe he wasn't interested or maybe we were out of touch. It was so vague. and <laughs> It's just stuck out to me that I kind of wanted to ask you what you heard. Because I had always heard that, you know... They offered him well, scale, but I mean, I don't know if it's a contractual thing. He didn't want to like dig up dirt or like, you know, say anything nasty, but it just seemed odd to me the way he answered the question. He didn't dance around it, but he just kind of gave this answer like, I, I you know, that's, I really don't know. And it, that, that to me just struck me as odd. It, things, I mean, things with the money from the original chainsaw were so screwed up you know because because um you know the mafia had had uh, uh a hand in distributing it and you know hooper didn't make a dime and and the actors had gone through just hell uh making the original and nobody made anything um and, and you know i don't know i don't uh, he doesn't really talk about it much um uh but he does his memoir uh, talking about Gunnar Hansen. Right. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know um, if if Hooper would, wanted to be diplomatic or um, or um, just didn't want to tell tales out of school. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just curious what you heard because I had always heard that he was offered scale plus yeah plus ten percent, yeah. but he said I don't have an agent. <laughs> but um, yeah, that that's the only that's the only story I've heard. Okay, because. Um, it just struck me as odd the way that Hooper answered the question, but but Hanson would eventually return. Um, in which I've lost, unfortunately, I've lost count at this point of which Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But he does make a cameo in I want to say Chainsaw 3D. Does that sound right to you? Uh, Chainsaw 3D. No, I, well. Yeah, he did. Well, it's archive footage. It's archive um, footage. Okay. Well, no, he does have a little um, as Boss Sawyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I have to admit, I've not seen uh, Chainsaw 3D. You're not missing anything. But he, <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, and he, and he had a, a pretty cool uh, cult career um, in horror films. I mean, one of his last films was. Reykjavik whale watching massacre, which I really want to see. Um, uh, but my, and most famously, of course, Hollywood chainsaw hookers with Fred Olin Ray. I mean, that's that's um, <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's no, a nice. I was going to say say there. no more. What was that? What was the first one you mentioned though? Because that title really uh, that sounded interesting. What was the first title yeah, you mentioned? Uh, two thousand nine uh, Reykjavik whale watching massacre. A group of tourists. Um, uh, around uh, Iceland, uh, and it is—it's an Icelandic film. Um, really? 
All right. And, you know, yeah, and, and Gunnar Hansen was of Icelandic descent, I believe. Wow. Uh, All right. Yeah, he, he was actually born. He was actually born in Iceland. Yeah. Oh, I'm. Le- I, I've just learned two new things today. So that's a, that's that's it's a good day for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would do a whole pod on uh, Gunnar Hansen. His that Islands at the Edge of Time book is. Oh terrific. my gosh, that's that would be great. Um, so um, just a couple things here because um, we, we talked well over an hour, and, and there's still a couple things that I want to hit. Um, yeah. Uh, initially, um, so. What did I want? Oh, so Bill Mosley says this is his favorite role. Um, but Dennis Hopper went, would go on to say it was the worst film he's ever been in. Well, that's certainly not true. But not, <laughs> I mean, not, not only is that not <laughs> not only is that not true. Um, I think that was his line until he made Super Mario Brothers, because it seems that that. <laughs> according to him, is the worst film that he's ever been in. So I'm glad that he made something to eclipse what he thought was his um, worst film because I think even like even if he thought it was the worst film he was in, he doesn't sleepwalk through this role. He's great in this role. He really, he really is. But and, I think, you know, it, he, he was kind of having a, a career rehabilitation at the time and was still... Yeah, still pretty screwed up. But you know, in '86, he made three films: Blue Velvet. Texas, yeah, he did Blue Velvet and Hoosiers. Right? right? Like, <laughs> what for, a what a year! Well, I was gonna say, for, for, for people that know me personally, um, and for some people that listen to the show, uh, my if Gun to the Head favorite movie of all time can only pick one, just one movie, and that's it. I'm stuck with that movie for the rest of my life. It's Blue Velvet. And oh, I thought you were the Hoosiers. <laughs> no, uh, no. Just kidding. Uh, I, I tend to go more on the uh, you know, the weirder side of things. So, yeah, Blue Velvet yeah. for me is my ultimate movie. But, yeah, because uh, – and we're not telling tales out of school. This is well documented. Dennis Hopper went through a period where um, he was basically uncastable. Uh, he, he went to rehab. He got himself cleaned up, got his life together. Uh, mm-hmm. It's almost like uh, – I guess the closest that I can think of is something that kind of happened with um, Robert Downey Jr. You know, before, you know, he he was a mess and people didn't want to put him in stuff for a while. Now the man's freaking Iron Man. But like you said, (laughs) like he comes out of rehab, cleans his life up. He's clean. He's he's clean. He's sober. And he's he puts out three banger movies just just and he's great in all of them and sometimes you can tell like i've watched movies and then i've heard behind the scenes that a so-and-so actor was like not happy on set and it kind of shows in their performance but dennis hopper especially when he's walking around with a chainsaw just bringing hell down he looks like he's having a blast and when he needs to be serious He's he's definitely not sleep. He's acting like he's he's yeah. acting. It's it's a really I think it's a great performance. Um, and yeah, and you know uh, I think especially in the scenes that he shares with Caroline Williams, who we haven't talked about a lot, but she really ki- 
kicks this movie's ass. She's so good in it. Yes. Um, and and but her scenes with um, Dennis Hopper, they really have a great interplay together. Um, the tension, uh, occasionally a bit, you know, little bits of tenderness. Um, it's it's this for a movie that is you know as deliberately over the top as this is. There there really is a lot of uh, nuance to the to the performances by the three uh leads you know well I, something else that i had come across was that initially she was supposed to be uh lefty's estranged daughter and i'm kind of right. i'm kind of glad that's not the case because lefty is the uncle of franklin and what's i should know this what's her name she survived sally. the movie who sally sally yes franklin and sally and and um so he, we've already got enough of the the motivation here for why he's tracking these them down because he's the uncle. I, I think it would have just gotten a little too complicated and muddled if we throw in Lefty as his illegitimate daughter because they, yeah. but they also kind of establish they establish a relationship together of trust and like he even calls her little sister. Um, and like you said, there's that tenderness there. Um, so I even, mean, yeah, there's, he ultimately he does use her, but but yeah, <laughs> he does. Yeah. But but uh, <laughs> and you you were th- and I you know in hindsight I'm thinking when exactly was he thinking about making an appearance because uh, if she hadn't been able to talk down Leatherface she'd be dead with LT and um, right. let's um another thing that I want to talk about um. Are the effects, the special effects, Mr. Tom Savini? Um, yeah. How would you rank this as far as to what? Are, well, first of all, what are some of your favorite special uh, uh, makeup effects from Mr. Savini? Would you say in this film, particular? Uh, no, no, particular, no, no. Just uh, all around, and then we'll get into this film. But I'm just, I mean, just. Oh God. Well, yeah, you can't you can't beat the the zombie films, um, and I would actually highlight. Uh, the remake of Night of the Living Dead, which Savini directed in 1990. I mean, he really went all out with the zombie work there. Uh, Day, Day of the Dead, of course. Um, I really like the uh, the stuff that he did in uh, Maniac and The Prowler. Yeah. Um, those are really good. But in, in Chainsaw 2, my favorite effect is LG's skin. Um, it's so brutal. It's so realistic. And for yeah. those of you who might not know, um, unfortunately, uh, one of the reasons that Mr. Savini is so good at these effects is that he was he was in Nam. I believe he was a photographer in Nam. That's uh, right. Yeah. And um, so he's he's seen the atrocities that men will do to each other. So yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons I think that, it, and I hate that I hate that he had to go through what he did, but he used it and now we've got some just i mean amazing effects we've got a man skinned alive in this movie um it's it's yeah. brutal and um and for those of you who don't know uh tom savini uh shot off his own head in maniac not literally but <laughs> effects wise yeah um, yeah, it's a hell of a shot. Yeah. Hell of a, well, I, apparently he didn't he didn't trust anyone else to take the shot, so he said, "I'll, I'll do it myself." Now that's uh, a <laughs> that's gutsy right there. But um, yeah. 
I came across this. Mr. Mr. Savini claims that his makeup effect on Grandpa is some of his finest work that he considers, and I could uh, yeah, I could see that. I mean, it's it's so detailed. It is. Yeah. It's it looks exactly like. I mean, th- thankfully through um, Blu-ray, like you can watch this movie. It's so clear. Um, because I remember like the VHS, like you you can actually appreciate the makeup effects. And I love the leather face mask in this. Um, not to say the original wasn't good, but this, this one really, I mean, you could see the detail and you could see it, but grandpa, I had to go back and watch the grandpa scenes. And I was like, really? He thinks that's his best work. But I'm like, then you see these close-ups of his face, uh, of grandpa at the, uh, the, the dinner scene, um, it's amazing makeup, amazing makeup work, such intricate details that you can see, like you can count the lines in this man's face. It's amazing. Um, yeah. I have a uh, question for you and then we'll start wrapping up because, um, uh, one of the things that I like to do is keep my podcast, uh, at least shorter than the movie we're talking about. So we're, uh, <laughs> we're getting there. Um, what did you think about this dinner scene versus the original? Do, well, I, do you see it as a parody of the original? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's no way you're going to match the intensity of that original sequence. And so he's, he's going for something very different with this one. Um, and, and it's kind of this parody of uh, domestic bliss, you know, the, the family uh, the family dinner with with a stretch uh, in a kind of um, <laughs> guest of honor position. Uh, she's, she's both the, the guest and the, um, and the main course, I suppose. <laughs> um, but the, the, this, this one had a different kind of intensity too. I mean, you know, that they do kind of revisit um, grandpa and the hammer. Um, yep. And, and some of the hits are, are, are pretty great so i would i would respectfully put them side by side as variations on a theme right <laughs> how about that <laughs> very very well said um another thing that i we that we, i just think that we should highlight here is the amazing production design the first one that house looked like it stunk like dead bodies with and like, yeah. you could almost feel flies all over it but this movie has two of the best set, like two, not the best, but two of my favorite sets. I love the radio station just because I yeah. grew up l- l- dreaming of being on the radio someday. And like, what, like, what does it look like inside the rock station with all these records and CDs and tapes? Like, it must be like the coolest job in the world. And, um, and then of course this like Texas battle Alamo funhouse of horrors layer that that's constructed. Yeah. It's amazing. The set, the sets in this movie are amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, Hooper films, one of the things that they have in common, I think is, you know, this really great production design and an emphasis on, detritus, refuse, uh, rusted out, um, rusted out, uh, 
power bodies and and utensils and pots and pans and just trash you know which really the 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 carcass of consumerism you know mm-hmm. and and the fact that this um that this battle land uh is an amusement park based on um you know uh the the, the battle of the alamo and and um really really gets to the way we we pr- commemorate and commodify right uh violence <laughs> and and we do war. Yeah. Yeah. um so and of course right this is a violent movie so it's a commodification of violence itself uh and i think hooper kind of got into the um paradox right of of critiquing while also being um this this violent product you know um yeah, I mean, it, it, like I was saying earlier, you could take it at face value for what it is, but if you you dig a little deeper and you, you really give it some thought, um, th- there's some. He's just making some very very interesting notes. One of the, I mean, he's got a guy, a guy that's so full of himself that he calls himself Nick the Prick, and uh, thankfully yeah. Nick the Prick dies in a car accident, but. Um, just a couple questions here to to finish up the episode. What's your favorite scene of this movie? Oh man! Well, okay. I'll 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 say this. I'll answer this by also plugging something that's about to happen that I'm really excited about. Oh. Speaking of com- speaking of commodification, excellent. Vin- Vinegar Syndrome is going to be releasing a 4K. Um, Restoration of Texas Chainsaw Massacre Two in October. So when this when this episode airs, it'll be um, soon before or just after this this comes out. And so I'm really we just we've been talking about how beautifully designed and 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 lit uh, this movie is. I mean, one of the great things about that uh, radio station sequence is the lighting. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm so excited to see this on 4k just to just to see the film again for the first time uh, uh my my favorite sequence of the movie well you know the thing that made an impression on me as a young boy was that radio station scene which really encapsulates everything that's about to happen in the movie right the menace the tension the the sort of sexualized violence uh, but also the comedy um so that in in the scene of of stretch and lg trapped uh in the in the bowels of the amusement uh amusement park with lg who had, who was a who's a clumsy character uh, a ridiculous character kind of a, a uh, the counterpart of lefty um but who even though he clumsily hit on stretch and never got anywhere he he was the one who genuinely cared about her, mm-hmm. and for him to give her his skin—literally, <laughs> <laughs> yeah—so so gross and morbid and yet touching. And you know, you can't—I can't think of that the movie now without thinking of Lou Perry, who played LG and and had small roles in other Hooper movies, including Poltergeist, who, you know morbidly and very sadly was was murdered in 2009 was was 
Oh, uh, was killed with with an axe. Um, uh, this 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 guy who had gone off of his meds and been drinking, just gotten released from prison, uh, killed him. Killed him with an axe, and it's such a sad thing. So whenever I watch Texas Chainsaw Two, uh, I do I feel kind of sad um, in all of LG's scenes because he's so great uh, and. You know, from from what everybody involved with the film said, just a really great guy. And, so I, and I, I hate pretty, to be a downer, but no, that's that's something I think. Well, about. well let's uh, let's let's bring it up a little bit. Uh, uh, <laughs> for those of you who may not know, uh, Perry had previously worked on the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, was basically oh. like a grip or a production assistant. It seemed right. like kind of an all hands on deck affair with the original, so to speak. But he, yeah, um, uh, Hooper put him in the movie because the guy had become an actor, and he's a great character, very likable. Although, I mean, yeah. if if one of the things that will turn you off is spit or people coughing up <laughs> gunk and spitting, um, he might not be your favorite character. Do you have a <laughs> Do you have a favorite line for this movie? Because the first one is not so much. Uh, there's not so many like noteworthy lines of dialogue. Uh, this one, on the other hand, I I could list off a whole bunch right here. Do you have a couple favorite lines for us? So many great lines. Most of them go to Jim Cedow and Dennis Hopper and Bill Mosley. Um, uh, obviously, "Dog Will Hunt" is one of the best known because it got sampled in that Primus song um, back in the day. But too many uh, puppies. I think it was the no what. What, it was what, uh, no. What song was it? Jerry, Jerry was a race car driver. Thank you. I yeah. I immediately it would be too. You know, Primus could have taken the easy route and put it on too many puppies, but it makes more much more <laughs> sense. Jerry was a race car driver. Yeah, but dog so, will hunt. So I, I I think that I think that the correct answer for most people should be one of Bill Mosley's lines. Um, lick my plate, lick my, lick, lick my plate, you dog dick, and 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 uh, she's my fave. But I'm gonna go with this is actually the title of of my essay in the book. Sex or the saw, boy, what's it gonna be? Jim oh, C. I Dow. love it. I love it. <laughs> Such a great line. <laughs> um, and just a, something something I ask my guests, um, and it this will obviously vary from person to person film to film what do you think it is about texas chainsaw massacre 2 that has made it achieve such cult status and the fact that it's coming out on vinegar syndrome which is a company that i love um shout out to vinegar syndrome if you want to send me some movies please do (laughs) Um, uh, I'm a subscriber, so I'm gonna get I'm gonna get mine in the mail soon. <laughs> I'm doing. Um, looking forward to uh, just a, a peek behind the the uh, the uh, the curtain here. We're working on um, a couple, but I know Christmas Evil will be our one of our Ooh. Christmas movies coming up. Um, um, so obviously, when you've achieved, what do you think it, it, about this movie though? It has made it. Mm-hmm achieve this cult status where people are still talking about it to this day and yeah um well I, i'll say a combination of things right because i think what i think what hits people first is the performances mm-hmm. um have bill mosley caroline williams 
uh, are fantastic and should be even better known than they are. Uh, Dennis Hopper is really good in his role, regardless of what he thought of the movie or didn't think of it. And Jim Seidel, who who's the one holdover from the original, um, just right. embodies yeah. that. And I uh, think this care. was this was his last role, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. So, so, but that alone wouldn't be enough, right? I mean, there there are a lot of great performances in movies that are not very memorable, and I think that this one. Um, the the themes even if even if you can't necessarily articulate them as as you're watching them they're there and you you feel them there's a depth to, to this movie that really rewards multiple watches um the tone and the pace which are characteristic of uh of toby hooper it, go, it goes really fast and does not let go of you um but i think most importantly the the overarching theme of this this woman Caroline Williams as Stretch navigating all of these aspects of dangerous men dangerous masculinity uh, I, I don't say that to 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 sound like I'm 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 trying to uh, make the film into this kind of PC statement or or anything like that but far from it. Um, I think what Hooper was working with was um, the reality of this this passing time and these shifting roles and um, a a sense of rage and violence that was building up in the culture and had been for for several decades. Yep. And and I think that when you watch the film today, you can laugh uh, at the humor and you can get really excited and 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 scared with the violence but but the reason it sticks with you is because it's got this 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 theme to it that that whether or not you're it's, you're seeing it on a conscious level it's it's there it just kind of grabs a hold of you you know makes you uncomfortable yeah it's it's always a movie that makes you that from what repeat viewings, you get something new out of it. You can certain movies you could sit there and watch, and you get the same thing over and over again. Or you watch a sequel to a movie, and you're just it's more of the same. This um, to me is just like an such an amped up version of the original movie, and um, yeah. I, I kind of love every little bit of it so much. And uh. Will, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Once again, American Twilight, the cinema of Toby Hooper, there will be links in the episode description um, how to order the book, and hopefully we can get that YouTube link of that conversation that you had. And um, if you're enrolled at UNC Greensboro, take some <laughs> courses, right? What, what are you teaching this semester, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, this this semester uh, is is an introduction to uh, film studies, a film appreciation class. So uh -huh. I'm doing a lot of the basic uh, uh, techniques and terminology. But uh, and it's a great class. You know, I show a lot of cool stuff. I, I I tend to mix a lot of really interesting things in with the canonical films. So you'll watch an Alfred Hitchcock movie, but you'll also see silent films by women directors like Lois Weber and. Uh, at least uh, Guy Blachet, stuff like that. Um, 
But in the spring semester, I have what is definitely my most popular class, and that's cult films. So uh, it covers everything from um, Doris Wishman to um, to uh, I show Cleopatra Jones. I show. Do you do um, any uh, Yodorowski? Oh yeah, yeah. We get into El Topo and uh, um, and all of that stuff, and we go all around the world. So uh, everything from martial arts to Herschel Gordon Lewis uh, gore films, uh, <laughs> people get a really uh, a good uh, historical overview of of the cult film in, in history. If you had to sum up, I don't I don't know if you do this in your your course or not. Do you can you sum up for me what constitutes a cult film? Yeah, yeah. Um, filmmakers cannot make cult films. Thank Audiences. you, thank you, thank you. Yeah. And you can and, and you can see when they're trying to. Yes, uh, it's always crap. <laughs> thank you so much uh, because I tried to. I've had this argument with people that if you try to make a cult film, you will fail. You absolutely. will fail because people will know you're trying too hard. I'm so glad I'm not the only one that thinks this. I'm sorry that I interrupted you. Please. No, not at all. Yeah, I mean, audiences make, make a cult film. And, and you know, what constitutes a cult film really varies. I mean, you could, you could argue that Star Wars is, is the biggest cult film of all, right? Absolutely. Um, but, I don't, but I don't show Star Wars. I show... Uh, I'm, I'm much more interested in smaller... Uh, cult films that are transgressive. Yes. Um, so it's, it's no, I don't think it's any, um, I think that, I think that it's, it's uh, fitting uh, that there's a correlation between cult films and exploitation films because sure. to be an exploitation film means that you are, are showing imagery that, um, generally is going to tiptoe up to what you can get away with and oftentimes step over. (laughs) So, so at the same time that you are maybe exploiting sexual content, um, uh, through, you know, nudity or, or some kind of object objectification of, of, um, sexual content, you may also deliberately or, or accidentally, um, be making a, a, a rebellious statement showing something that is controversial and and um, taboo and therefore making audiences think about that taboo right yes and, and, I mean the first the first films for example that showed interracial relationships we, we think of you know guess who's coming to dinner with Sidney Poitier but way before that there were really crass exploitation films that that uh, um, certainly were not progressive in their politics, but nevertheless yeah. showed uh, those kinds of images. And, and, Isn't there a movie uh, like Oops, My yeah. Baby is Black or something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, so, so I, I think that, you know, there's, there's cult films that, that get created around fandom, uh, like Star Wars, yeah. Um, uh, you could maybe say Rocky Horror Picture Show as well. But but I, what I like about Rocky Horror Picture Show as a cult film, as opposed to to uh, Star Wars, is the um, transgressive nature of its of its themes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, of of 
queer identities and, and a celebration of them. Um, right. Um, which is not to say Star Wars doesn't have some transgressive themes and offer a home for for um, people who previously didn't feel like they had a community. But but smaller cult films like that um, appeal to me particularly. So that's that's why I'm rambling on about it so, yeah. so long. <laughs> from, and and yeah. the, uh, just a, a couple quick things about from me about cult films. One of the things that I, after doing this show for so long, is... If I was in the marketing department for uh, a studio or if I had to cut together a trailer for a movie, something like – and I don't, I'm not hating on Star Wars or hating on the MCU, anything like that. That to me mm-hmm. is, is a trailer that I could probably cut pretty – you know, you show the villain, you show a cool action scene, you show the hero, you give him a good one-liner, and um, then you're gone. Uh some of the movies that I've covered on this show, I'm like, oh, I wouldn't want to have to cut a trailer for this because it's either going to be really yeah. misleading or just dead on wrong. And, you know, to me, it's it's there's so much different things going on in, in, in a cult movie that, yeah, to me, that was one of the things that I'm trying to work up a definition of a cult film. To me, marketing would be an issue because how do you market mm-hmm. Something. Right, the the audience does the marketing, you yeah. know. And uh, similarly to what you were saying, um, now with the way that advertisers are so aggressive, um, you have to go out and kind of find a cult movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, the latest MCU TV show or the latest mo- MCU movie, the latest Lord of the Rings movie, latest Lord of the Rings TV yeah. show, they're gonna find. They will find you. They will be aggressively right. advertising everywhere. A cult movie, you need to go find it, or you need to at, or like I said, back when video stores used to be around, you would go ask the clerk for a recommendation. Well, the the, right. the you knew what clerk to ask a recommendation for from, you know. Um, you know, I worked at a video store for four years while I was in college, and when people would ask me to recommend a movie, I always recommended the same one, Frankenhooker. Wow. Um, How many people actually rented Frankenhooker? Not many, but not the ones who did liked it. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, well, thank you so much for giving me some of your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope that I can have you on the the show again sometime in the future. Absolutely. I'm up for anything. Yeah. This was a this was a lot of fun. I really uh, enjoyed it and and thanks again for having me. And yeah, I'll be happy to come back. Excellent. So, for the Cult Film Companion Podcast, this is Chris. I'm signing off, and I'll have some more real good cult gems coming up with you real soon.